You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight, Bezrus Hashem, please God, we're going to be continuing with our series of classes on the inner world of addiction. And tonight's class is going to be titled Souls of Chaos. Now, in order to properly contextualize what we're going to be speaking about tonight, we need to retrace our steps a little bit back towards what we spoke about last week, which is that it must remain present in front of our eyes when engaging in the sugya of addiction that addiction is not simply a substance abuse disorder. Addiction is not simply the physical or even mental dependency on a mind-altering chemical, but rather addiction, like we said in the name of the Zohar, is anything that a person finds themselves stuck with, any behavior that a person engages in, in order to negate the pain of life in order to escape from the midst of life so that life becomes more pleasurable than it is in actuality can become the source of an addiction for a person. Like we said, the word addiction is associated with the word adukim, implying a a deep stuckness to any type of behavior, in particular avodazara, any type of foreign worship, which distracts the individual from the reality of day-to-day life. So in order to benefit from the condition of recovery from addiction and to experience the difficulty that addiction brings with it, one mustn't experience mind-altering chemicals or dependency on a mind-altering chemical, but a person can find within themselves the potential towards addiction according to the nakuda, according to the point that is shayach to their heart at that particular moment. We all find ourselves stuck in certain behaviors that need to be undone, in certain patterns in our lives that must be erased, yet we continuously find ourselves stuck in the same places. So when discussing the sugya of addiction, we're really speaking to the nakuda hapnimis, to the nakuda of addiction that each and every person finds within themselves. Now, in this week's class, what we're going to be discussing is the type of individual who finds themselves stuck in addiction, the type of individual who finds themselves in the lower aspects of life, in the abjectness and the broken shards of experience, stuck to the, to the dregs of life, stuck to the incessant need to do things that leave oneself feeling dirty, sullied, unclean, unholy, broken. What type of soul, what type of individual experiences the propensity towards this space? What type of individual is drawn to the lower aspects of creation, to the lower aspects of existence, to the darkness of life, to the trauma of everyday life, so that they become stuck in the threshold of addiction itself? Now, in order to try and understand 
or gain a little bit of insight into the type of individual, the type of personality that finds itself stuck in this condition, what we're going to look at is a sugya, are different concepts within Jewish thinking, within Kabbalah, within Hasidus, within psychology as well, that speak of a particular personality, of a particular personality type or a personality trait, if you will, that finds itself stuck within the darker pockets of energy in the world, in reality, in existence, and in their lives. Now, before we go and characterize any type of archetypal personality that finds itself stuck in addiction, I want to make very clear that by no means is this meant to be taken in any metaphysical sense that each and every addict or each and every individual who finds themselves stuck in the world of addiction is rooted in a particular soul root, now, it could be that once upon a time there were individuals, spiritual individuals who had the capacity of discerning such things, perhaps in the prophetic community. But nowadays, in 2019, it's certainly beyond my capacity to even begin to imagine the arrogance it would take to try and express where a person's essence is rooted. But when speaking of the paradigm or the archetype of the addicted soul or the addicted spirit, what we're speaking about is a point within each and every individual. So that just as when we're discussing in spiritual texts or psychological texts that there is a feminine archetype of a soul or a masculine archetype of a soul or a wounded healer archetype of a soul utilizing Jungian theory, it doesn't mean that that soul is stuck in that particular archetype, but it means that that soul is accessing that particular potential that each soul, each individual, each singular personality contains within themselves the enormity of human experience. We all contain within ourselves multitudes, whether it's a feminine property, a masculine property, a wounded property, a healing property. Now, the question of what determines the soul's valence or what determines the personality's valence is not what its essence is, but rather what it chooses to focus on. So when I speak about archetypal patterns of addicted spirit or addicted soul or addicted personality, by no means is it to come and say that some people experience this while others don't, but it means that this is the type of archetypal pattern that is expressed in addictive tendencies and in addictive behaviors. But it's something that abides and exists within each and every individual. So that when we speak about souls of chaos or souls of Cain or souls of the repentant or the Balshuva, we're not speaking about souls in contradistinction to other spirits or souls or personalities which do not experience those, but we're speaking about individuals where the emphasis of their experience at this particular moment seems to be more rooted in the Balshuva, in the repentant, or in the spirit of chaos. Now, in order to properly understand the introduction that we're going to be speaking about tonight, one of the abiding truths or one of the most significant truths that I approach the clinical practice of working with addicts or alcoholics is that in contradistinction to the old way where addiction used to be looked at as a failure of positive choices, where the addict or the alcoholic chose deliberately or non-deliberately to continue engaging in the destructive patterns of behavior in spite of the apparent negative consequences meaning to say that the individual who, for example, was addicted to intravenous usage of heroin, each morning that that individual wakes up, they choose deliberately to use heroin instead of taking care of their families and following through with their responsibilities. 
Now, this destructive approach to addiction is what we might be able to phrase as the choice model of addiction, which laid blame, guilt, and sheer responsibility on the addict themselves, in spite of the fact that there may have been certain physiological or biological propensities towards addiction. Now, thankfully, over the last 20 years or so, there has been a push from the scientific community as well as the medical community to identify the condition of addiction and all of its multifarious facets, not as a choice that the addict makes, but rather as a preconditioned experience that when all the circumstances align together, it creates the unfortunate circumstance of an individual who is almost entirely devoid of choice as to whether they're going to engage in behaviors or not. Now, something that I stress to my clients with regards to the disease model of addiction is that by no means does the disease model of addiction take away from the responsibility or the accountability that the individual has for their lives, for their behaviors, and the consequences of their behaviors. The only distinction between viewing addiction as a choice and viewing addiction as a condition that one finds themselves stuck in is that while we're responsible and accountable to fix whatever has been destroyed, when addiction is viewed as a disease, it is no longer the addict's fault with regards to what they do. In other words, they have not done it deliberately. The individual who is stuck in their negative pattern of behavior did not wake up on Monday morning and say that today I choose to destroy things, but rather due to circumstances almost beyond their control, due to the stuckness of their experience and their conditioned environment, the individual is stuck in a behavior that in spite of their best efforts, they are simply incapable of pulling themselves out of until there is some sort of insight that comes from beyond themselves to break them out of their repetitive nature and behaviors. So the stage that has been set with the disease model of addiction is one that no longer takes for granted the old concept that the addict, the alcoholic, the individual stuck in some negative behavior or each and every one of us in our own pockets of negative energy in our lives, it's no longer seen as someone who has deliberately failed in their purpose and has decided to engage in destructive and dark behaviors, but rather this is an individual who, in spite of their better judgment and in spite of their best efforts, has become entrenched in a pattern of behavior that is beyond the locus of their control. What changes most significantly is that instead of looking at the addict or the alcoholic or the destructive individual as somebody who is to be blamed and somebody who is seen as a negative representative of all that is wrong with humanity and society, someone who is in need of punishment or retribution, heaven forbid, the addict or the alcoholic can now be taken as what they truly are, which is a human being, an individual who is unfortunately due to circumstances within their control and beyond their control. The addict is now seen as a human being, quo human being, and therefore their addiction does not say anything about their moral values, about their ethical values, about the love that they have for their fellow human being or for their family, about the type of parent or spouse that they can be but rather it speaks to a medical condition that keeps them trapped within a negative pattern of behavior. Now, this approach, this redemptive change or this redemptive turn within the treatment of addiction and all of its multifarious manifestations, up to and including each and every individual according to the nakuda of their own experience, has allowed us to look at the addict not as a destructive personality, 
but as a uniquely powerful personality that in spite of its effort and in spite of its potential has become stuck in destructive behaviors. So when speaking to addicts and alcoholics, when speaking to individuals who have found themselves in the consequential destruction that substance abuse and addiction brings with it, instead of looking at broken down souls who have nothing to offer, who need retribution or who need to be repudiated for their behaviors, what the clinician or what the practitioner finds in front of themselves is a profound example of the human spirit taken to its limit. Like we spoke about last week, addiction on a certain level as it exists in all of us vis-a-vis the potential towards addiction or as it exists within the actual addicts themselves who simply represent the furthest that the human being can go in terms of being stuck, the addict represents and presents in front of us a vast personality of potential power and energy that can be potentially redirected towards something bigger than itself. Now, when trying to understand what type of personality, what type of individual gets stuck in these places, what type of individual is drawn to the relief, to the destructive relief that pulls them away from the midst of life, that forces them to ignore the reality of their world. What we find within the Jewish tradition, within the Kabbalistic tradition, and within the Hasidic tradition is that these spirits, these personalities that find themselves stuck in the realm of addiction, in the lower rungs of experience, are in truth rooted in a loftier place rooted in a more profoundly, potentially powerful space than individuals who never really get stuck in these behaviors. In other words, when looking at the individual and their abject consequences of their behavior, it's very easy to assume that this individual is of a lowly status, containing little potential within themselves, and simply in need of medical treatment to wean them or detoxify them off of the substance of their addiction, that thing which gives meaning to their lives. But when understood properly, the addict really in truth represents something profoundly different. The addict is the spirit, is the personality, is the soul, that for whatever reason has found it impossible to draw comfort to draw experience, to draw benefit from the things that everybody else draws benefit from. And therefore, the addicted spirit, the addicted personality feels forced due to factors that we're going to be discussing to draw support, to draw comfort, to draw significance and substantiality from some of the most powerful substances in the world that the addict who runs towards opiates, that the addict who runs towards difficult and destructive behaviors is not somebody who is lowly, but rather it is somebody who has been dissatisfied with everything else in the world. And this dissatisfaction has pushed them and forced them beyond the natural ways of finding comfort in the world and forced them to try and find comfort that their soul needs. And the unfortunate truth is that what typically the addict or the alcoholic finds comfort in is going to be destructive and something that needs to be undone. But in spite of the negative consequences of the behaviors, the psychological drive that drives the individual to find comfort in things beyond the realm of this world 
in the toxic substances that offer a glimpse of a pleasure that is beyond the confines of this world, that speaks of a lofty space within the soul that desires more than what this world can offer. And when you tap into that space within the soul of the addicted individual, what you're able to do is you are able to converse with the potential that abides within the addicted individual, within the brokenness and within the fallenness of that person, and to speak to a place that is rooted in a place loftier than those who have never experienced these difficulties to begin with. Now, this is abundantly clear when you work or deal with somebody who finds themselves stuck in the darker pockets of experience. That somebody who finds themselves stuck in patterns of behavior which offer relief, which in spite of the negative consequences, that individual continues seeking relief, instead of looking at it as a pattern of bad behavior and bad choices, a person is capable of looking at this person and saying, okay, if you need this substance to make yourself feel better, that means that your soul, that your personality, that your spirit is in, is in need of something much larger and much more potent than what other people will be satisfied by. That on a certain level, the addict or the alcoholic or the paradigm of the addict or the alcoholic is representative of the sense that there is a certain place in our souls, there is a certain place within each and every one of our personalities that is not satisfied with what this world has to offer, that finds the pain of life, that finds the discomfort of life, the natural human condition of life to be so unbearable at certain points that relief needs to come from elsewhere. Now, the concept of souls of chaos is rooted in the Kabbalistic theory or the, the shita in the Kabbalah of the Arizal that prior to the creation of this world, prior to the creation of the world as we know it in its ordered and normal way of functioning, where people derive basic levels of pleasure and comfort from things that are permissible that do not bring with them destruction and chaos, that's going to be preceded by a preliminary and more immature stage of creation, which is referred to as the world of chaos or the world of tohu, the world of confusion, the world of not knowing which way is up and which way is down. Because according to Kabbalistic cosmology, according to the Kabbalistic narrative of how the worlds were created, Prior to the emanation and the arrangement of this world in its ordered form, there was the traumatic and catastrophic experience of Shvira Takelim, of the shattering of the vessels. And like we said in the Shiram on the Leshem and in the Shiram on Rav Kook in his Sefer Reshmilin, particularly by the Osches, this Shvira Takelim is not, God forbid, some accidental catastrophe that results in God, so to speak, not planning things in advance enough but rather this was a deliberate trauma that was rooted within the fabric of creation so as to allow the possibility of a fixing that can only take place when things are broken. So God, so to speak, deliberately created a shattered world so that human beings can engage in volitional action through their own bechira, through their own choice, to elevate these broken sparks and to take the brokenness of existence and to bring it back through our own effort to the fixed, arranged nature and serene space of order and rectification. Now, one of the reasons given, and in our shir on the Leshem Shabbat Achaloma and Rav Shlomo Yashov's Kabbalistic theology, we spoke about 11 reasons given throughout the writings of the Arizal. 
One of the main reasons given for the shattering of the vessels for this initial catastrophe that takes place and constitutes and arranges everything that happens within existence and within the souls of individuals, one of the reasons for the Shvirat HaKelim, one of the reasons for this catastrophic breaking and shattering of the vessels, which on a psychological level is simply representative of a primary trauma that does not affect the subject, but rather gives birth to the subject in the sense that subjectivity is not something that is disrupted by trauma, but rather subjectivity is something that is born out of trauma. Whether you're looking at the psychological thought of Otto Rank, who says that the birth itself is the trauma, and this is expressed in the Zohar and in the writings of Ishbitz and Radzin as well, or whether you're looking at the writings of Lacan and other psychiatric or psychoanalytic thinkers, Trauma is not something that disrupts the subject or the personality, forcing it to come to terms with a reality that it did not know yesterday, forcing it to come to terms with a space that it cannot return to where things were once peaceful, but rather trauma is a constitutive reality within each and every subject so that our entire lives, to a certain extent, are our responses to our own particular and specific form of trauma, which is existing, which is the fact of being a human being that to a certain extent, and the Zohar would agree with this, and the Ishbitzer would agree with this, and the Radziner would agree with this, being human itself is enough of a trauma. Now, this original trauma, this original catastrophe, one of the reasons given by the many commentators and by the Arizal himself is that initially there was too much light of divinity, there was too much light of Hashem, there was too much light of God descending into the world and the vessels and the kalim, which represent those things that are meant to constrict and conceal the light of God, could not handle this light. And once the immense and intense amount of light settled within these vessels, which served to darken and constrict and conceal the light, the vessels could not contain themselves and they shattered and they were obliterated into innumerable fragments and parts of themselves. And existence on a certain level, reality on a certain level, is born and constituted by the emergence of the manifold and multiple shards of these kalim that broke in this original trauma. Now, in this world of chaos, in this world of tohu, on the one hand, it represents a catastrophe. On the one hand, it represents trauma. On the one hand, it represents a deep mistake that is rooted within the fabric of creation. So it is not meant to be seen as a positive occurrence. It is not meant to be seen as something to be glorified. But on the other hand, if we follow the words of our teachers properly, the cause of this trauma was too much light. The cause of this trauma was an energy of divinity, was an energy of meaning, was an energy of presence that was too strong for this world to handle. And Rashi himself, Rav Shlomo Yitzchaki, brings this to our minds immediately already at the beginning of Parshas Bereshis. In the second Pasuk in the entire five books of Moshe, the Ha'aretz ha'ita tohu v'vohu v'choshech al p'nei tahom, v'ruach elokim merachepes al p'nei hamayim. One of the most profound things about the rabbinic interpretation of the Torah is that unlike other theologies or religions, which choose to see the world as it emerges or emanates from God as perfect, Judaism and religions of the Bible see the creation of the world as a catastrophe. Things are already in the wrong place. Things are already chaotic. 
even before the emergence of human beings onto the scene, when we mess things up through our volitional activity, there was an ontological essence that was already confused, already broken, that already before the creation of the human being, the world was tohu v'vohu v'choshech al-pnei tahom, v'ruach alokim merachepes And the word tohu, which for the Arizal and for our Mekubalim is representative of this catastrophic stage of experience, this catastrophic stage of creation, where things were not arranged properly because there was too much light and the vessels could not contain that light. Rashi comments on the word tohu. Rashi comments on the word chaos. And this commentary, although Rashi doesn't quote it, is taken from the Sefer Habahir, potentially the, the most ancient of Kabbalistic texts. And Rashi says as follows. Tohu vavohu. What does tohu mean? What does chaos mean? Tohu lashon tema veshimamum. Tohu and chaos comes from the language of questioning and bewilderment. Sha'adam tohe umishtomim alvohu shaba. That a person who looks at it is confounded and overwhelmed by what is going on here, by that which is there. That this originary trauma gives birth to a reality that is so overwhelming, that is so shattered, that is so rich in its essence, that when human beings look at it, they're blinded to a certain extent. So what we have here is this notion that this originary trauma, this originary trauma that creates the chaos and disorder of the world, is actually rooted not in a deficiency not in something that is wrong or something that demands punishment or retribution or punitive action, but rather something that in its essence represents a spiritual ideal that is stronger and more rich than what this world can actually handle. Now, for the addict or the alcoholic, to a certain extent on the abstract level, addiction can be seen as being rooted in the attempt to draw a certain level of comfort and meaning from this world that the world in truth does not offer. To a certain extent, if the substances that the addict partook in to provide themselves with a feeling of well-being and comfort in the face of the anxiety and the depression that pervades their experience, if there were no consequences associated with these substances, the approach and the connection to substances would not be maladaptive, but rather it would be particularly understandable. One of the abiding truths in my approach to addiction is that instead of asking the addict or the alcoholic what is wrong with their behavior, instead of asking the fallen individual what is wrong with their behavior, why, they, why do you continue doing things that bring with them consequences? First and foremost, what I try and acknowledge is the reasonable reaction to life, which substances sometimes might offer. If a person has experienced trauma, if a person lives with an undiagnosed form of anxiety or depression, which most human beings experience, quo human being, then finding a substance that offers a relief to the harsh reality of the world is a reasonable response to the condition of the world. Now, it's not a healthy or adaptive response, but it's reasonable. And when you respond to the nature of addiction, instead of saying, what is wrong with you? You say, I understand. I understand why you felt you needed to seek comfort in a substance so powerful. 
the addict or the alcoholic or the broken individual feels understood in a way that they haven't beforehand. Because for the addict or the alcoholic, it is not a question of enjoying intoxication more than anybody else. It's never been about intoxication. The addict or the alcoholic or the broken individual does not enjoy being high or drunk or intoxicated more than other people. But being sober, being aware of themselves, being conscious of themselves, being alone within themselves is simply more painful for them than it is for other individuals. There's a deep sensitivity that abides within the spirit of the alcoholic or the addict or the individual who lives within the potential towards addiction that is not found by other individuals. So while other individuals who never find themselves stuck in the darker pockets of their experience may walk through life feeling that things are sunny and bright and wonderful and there's no pain and there's no problem, the addict or the alcoholic or the paradigm of addiction represents that personality which looks at the world and instead of claiming that things are perfect, sees the deep imperfection that abides within the world, sees the brokenness of the world, sees the shattered sparks in the world and says, this cannot be what it is meant to be. The world that I live in should not be this broken, should not be this dark. And there is an impulsive drive. There is a craving, if you will, that pushes this individual to try and experience something that, according to their own spirit, fits the ideal. And in the broken state of things, that is often experienced through substances. In the recovery-oriented model, that is experienced in the higher power, or like we saw in the letter of Carl Jung to Bill W., expressed in the medieval language as the quest of the individual for wholeness. Now, Rav Avram Yitzhak Akohin Cook, the source of, of nearly everything that you're hearing tonight, speaks of these souls, speaks of the condition of the existential worldliness of these spirits, of these personalities that seek more than this world can offer, that are rooted in a space of tohu, rooted in a space of chaos, where at the essence of their soul, there is too much light. There is too much experience. And because this world does not adhere to that level of experience, because the vessels can't contain it, this individual, this personality lives within a sense that what I know to be true at the deepest recesses of myself is a profound expression of light and energy and potential and expression. But what I see in the reality of my experience is one of diminution and impoverishment and boredom and meaninglessness, and therefore, instead of being stuck in the meaninglessness expression of normal life, this spirit, this soul, seeks to find experience and presence in things beyond this world. And Rav Cook writes as follows in a famous paragraph described as, or titled, Hanishamot Sha'ol Matohu, the souls of the world of chaos. And I'm going to do my best to try and translate a few pieces from this. Rav Cook says as follows, he says, the normal arrangement of things in their perfection and straightness, with an adherence to the proper ethical and moral behavior and the lawful experience in this world, this is the experience of the world of rectification, of the world of tikkun. And any deviation 
or really hit partuts, any breaking away from this experience, Bein mitzad kalu sadas vehefkerus, bein mitzad aliyah sadas vehesayrus ruach elyon, whether it's from the perspective of diminished consciousness and hefkerus and meaninglessness, or whether it comes from a real spiritual enlivening within the self, comes from the world of chaos. Meaning to say that those who find the moral and ethical and lawful constrictions and limitations of this world, in spite of the fact that halacha on a practical level, they're moving beyond what they should be doing, what it's rooted in is rooted in a space prior to tikkun, which is tohu. And Rav Kook continues and he says, Ha'idealistim ha'gadolim rotsim b'seder yafe betov mutzak v'adir kazesh she'ein be'olam lo dugma v'yasod. That these idealists, these individuals who want the world to operate according to a level of experience which is not true within this world, which is not possible within this world, because the vessels of this world cannot contain that light, they want and they desire something and they crave something that this world cannot offer. What the addict or the alcoholic tastes in their substance is not the high. It is not the pleasure. It is not the dopamine release. What it is is the feeling that, ah, this is what I have been searching for my entire life. Because prior to this, I was uncomfortable. Because I knew there was something bigger. I knew there was something that offered more power. And these individuals who see the substance of life as being something that is larger than this world, they destroy the order of this world, like we see with addicts and alcoholics, like we see with our most destructive tendencies, that it does not align with this world. Rav Kook continues and he says, Nishamos de Tohu, the souls of chaos, Gavoos Heim me Nishamos de Tikkun, are larger and more supernal than the spirits and the souls that emerge from rectification. Gidolos heim ma'od, they are very large. Mevakshos heim harbe minamitsius, they request and demand and crave so much from existence. Masha'ein ha'kelim shalahem yecholim lispol, what this world and what these vessels cannot contain. Mevakshos heim or gadol ma'od, what they're searching for and what they're desiring and what they're craving is a profoundly lofty light. Anything that is measured or constricted or numerated is not going to satisfy them. When searching for something so large, in a world that cannot contain something so large, the addict or the alcoholic or the paradigmatic addicted soul is going to find the next best thing. And in a broken world that does not offer the ideal, sometimes for these broken spirits, sometimes for these unfortunate souls, sometimes for each and every one of us on our own particular level, the only thing that could provide that substantiality and that feeling is an intoxicating substance that removes our consciousness of this worldly limitations. That for a momentary glimpse, we are able to remove ourselves from the constriction of this world. Now, by no means is it healthy to find that relief in substance, but the substance is symptomatic of a desire to experience something much larger than what this world has to offer. 
that like Carl Jung said in his letter to Bill W. regarding the formation of Alcoholics Anonymous, what the addict or the alcoholic is truly seeking is not the intoxicating element of the substance, but rather a profound experience of wholeness that the spirit desires because it tasted it once and in its unconscious form because it tasted a world of tohu, because it tasted an expression of light that was larger than what this world could offer. And Rav Kook continues, and he says, Their incessant craving will not stop. They will engarb their craving in different vessels, in drugs, in substances, in alcohol, in ideas, in movements, in people, in behaviors in attitudes, in lies. They will continue to seek more and more beyond what is permissible. They seek and they desire, yet they fall. Because what they desire is something that is unlimited. They fall into depression, and hopelessness, in anger and rage and resentment. And from, and, and from an impatience, beresha, in wickedness, bezadon, deliberate wickedness, beshiflus, in lowliness, bekior, in gross and abject experience, betiyuv, in desire, behirus, in destruction, and all negativity. Rav Kook says, because these souls can't find the satisfaction that they're seeking, they will find it in all of the most destructive elements of existence. But nevertheless, the the emergence of their spirit that is seeking something more will not be quieted. It is revealed in the azepanim, the brazen of the generation. Now, while Rav Kook meant this in his own contextual historical standpoint, this text screams to be expressed and understood in the context of what we find in our own particular generation of the emergence of a profound level of addiction to any type of behavior, substance, or attitude that each and every individual experiences within their own potential towards addiction that has not been seen in history. We must choose to see this phenomenon as one that represents a generation or a people or an individual that is seeking something much larger from the world that they have not been able to satisfy their craving with. Nishmasam ma'od, says Rav Kook. Their souls are rooted in such a lofty place, from the lights of chaos, from that moment before creation, from that traumatic emergence of a light so strong that this world could not handle it. The courage and the stubbornness that abides within their personalities is the holy spark that exists within them. Yes, the things that they attach themselves to are destructive. Yes, the things that they seek hope in are disastrous and they create consequences for themselves and for everybody in their lives. But nevertheless, the craving that seeks something more than this world can offer is rooted in a lofty place within the soul. Because they have not found something in this world that provides them with all the answers that they seek, because they have not found something within this world that provides them with the comfort that they desire, they kick at everything and they say that this world is not worth it. They say that any substance that will pull me away from this world 
is going to be what I'm seeking. Now, what Rav Kook is telling us about the addict or the alcoholic or this disastrous and catastrophic, chaotic soul is that the craving and the desire for things beyond this world, for a substance that can provide a sense of well-being beyond the functional nature of this world, is rooted in a desire for something more. And when this is pointed out to the addict or the alcoholic, what they find is the potential within themselves to seek out that substantiality, to seek out that substance, not in the transient destructive nature of substances, but in something more pervading and something more essential and something more abiding, which is referred to colloquially as a higher power. Like we saw in the name of Carl Jung and in the name of Bill W and the 12-step programs are suffused with this concept that in order to satisfy this deep craving, it needs to come from someplace higher than the individual. Whether it is God, whether it is spirituality, whether it is the void, whether it is the tohu for an individual, what matters is that it's something bigger than themselves. It is a higher power that is larger than them, a wholeness that goes beyond the brokenness that they experience. Now, this idea of the souls of chaos is expressed elsewhere in Chazal, in the name of our rabbis, in the name of our Meforshim, in different terms. One way of describing this is that it is the neshama of the Balchuva. It is the soul of the repentant. Now, our sages in the Talmud and the Gemara have a remarkable statement. They say, That in the place that the repentant individual stands, the truly righteous is incapable of standing. And the way that this is interpreted by common commentaries as well as the more spiritual and Kabbalistic-minded commentaries is not that the Balchuva or that the repentant who has broken themselves and now seeks to fix themselves is so low that the tzaddik and the truly righteous doesn't go near their space, but it's inverted. That the reason the truly righteous individual is incapable of standing in the place of the repentant and the individual who seeks to rectify and redeem and recover their lives is because the Balchuva is because the repentant individual, the individual who has tasted darkness and severity and the bitterness of this world and has emerged out of it for the sake of doubling the, potent, the potency of their lives, is so lofty that the truly righteous individual has no access there. That in spite of the fact that we typically look at the world of rectification and the world of Tikkun as being a loftier space of the world of Tohu and chaos, in its root, the world of chaos is so lofty that tikkun and rectification can ever reach there. That the balchuva, to a certain level, at the moment of their repentance, can teach the world, can teach even the truly righteous, the power of what the Zohar HaKadosh describes in Parshas Chayesar and Davkuvchav Zayin Amud Beis, that the balchuva draws down a level of spirituality, the chela yasir, with the deeper level of expression that the Balchuva who comes after having experienced the bitterness of this world, after having been forced to acknowledge the fact that nothing in this world will satisfy the craving of my spirit, the Balchuva is forced to come back to a place of rectification. That Balchuva, that individual who has tasted bitterness and darkness and emerged out of it, is now capable of disclosing a deeper level of spirituality a deeper level of personality, a deeper sense of the authenticity of what it means to be a human being, quo human being in a world that is apparently devoid of significance, 
than the truly righteous individual can ever possibly reveal. Because it is only the individual who has tasted the mariru, who has tasted this bitterness and transforms it into sweetness, only that individual is capable of showing that even within the darkness of my experience, even within the abject pockets of reality where I find myself stuck within all manners of behavior, each and every individual according to the level of their own heart, the level of light that comes about afterwards is a level that is incomprehensible to somebody who has never tasted darkness. This is why in the famous Gemara in Avodah Zarah, Daf Yud Zayin Amar Aleph, the archetype of the Gemara's description of an addict, Rabbi Elazar ben Durdayev, Rav Tzadok HaKohen, the Maharal, the Ben Ishchai, described that his name, Durdayev, is representative of the Aramaic term of the dregs of wine. The unfortunate consequences of what happens when wine and intoxicating substances, representative of any substance that a person seeks relief in, is included within this personality of Elazar ben Durdayev, addicted to his behavior addicted to the relief and the dopamine release and the pleasure that came about through his own particular substance of choice. Now, Elazar ben of the Gemara goes into deep discussions about the energy he invested in his cravings, the willingness to suffer for the sake of his drug of choice. This is a profoundly prophetic comment of Chazal because the addict or the alcoholic, in spite of the fact that ostensibly they're seeking pleasure, they are willing to suffer for the sake of their drug of choice showing us as practitioners and professionals that this is so little about the drug and so much more about what the drug represents. Because if it was truly about pleasure, the individual wouldn't suffer for their pleasure. But the addiction and the craving is so strong that it even forces the individual who is running away from pain to experience pain for the sake of their pleasure. Rav Lazar ben Durdayev experiences and he engages in all forms of effort to reach the culmination of his desire, to reach the culmination of his craving. And in the Talmud's profound way of describing the anti-climax of his experience, he comes to realize that everything is nothing. That the desire and the craving that he's seeking in behaviors and substances is like empty air. It's meaningless. And at that moment, he has a hear her tshuva or a moment of clarity as it's described in the rooms, or a rock-bottom experience which is simply when an individual sees the truth of their reality and they're given a choice as to whether they want to move beyond their stuckness or whether they want to become more entrenched in it. And Rav Elezer experiences that moment and he opens himself up to the possibility of change. And as a result, when he finally recognizes that change must come based on his own self-acceptance and his own profoundly existential sense of responsibility, he loses himself. He's no longer able to function in this world and he passes on. And Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the most profound individual, the spiritually refined individual, the paradigm of the Tzadik Gamor, sees this and he cries. Bacha Rebbe. He cries because he sees within this individual the profound potential of spirituality that abides within the experience of the Balchuva, within the experience of the addict, within the experience of the abject individual who finds themselves at particular moments in their lives in the Bechina of Nefila, of Tohu, of chaos, of brokenness, and loss of control. And Rabbi Yudanasi says there are individuals who gain their lives in this world in one moment. 
They're individuals who access the essence of spirituality in the single movement away from the darkness that they have tasted. And that is not something that the tzaddik is able to experience. That is not something that the purely righteous is able to experience. Because the souls of the Balchuva, the souls of these repentant individuals, is rooted in a space that is beyond this world. Now, the Balatanya, the Mitlarebi, Rav Tzadok, a number of our tzaddikim talk about how to fix this. How does one fix this condition? How, do, how does the soul of chaos, how does a soul that desires more from this world than this world can offer, to the extent that they're seeking out relief and, and comfort in substances beyond what this world can handle, how does one come to terms in the moment of recovery? How does one live in a world where when you look at it and you see people walking around in the boredom of their everyday life, not suffering, but not questioning anything, unconscious to the pain of other individuals, unconscious to the quiet suffering of the other, unconscious to the quiet suffering of the soul in its removal from the light, unconscious of the fact that the way things are right now are not ideal, that we live within a deferred reality where things are not where they're supposed to be. And each and everything that we experience is meant to be elsewhere. How does this soul, how does this spirit, how does this recovering individual learn to come to terms? Now we're going to be discussing at length in the future weeks how a person truly comes to terms with this. But one of the more profound lessons is expressed explicitly in the Mitla Rebbe in his Torah Chaim and Parshas Vayishlach when it comes to the story of Yaakov and Esau in a famous term that is referred to as Oros de Tohu Bekelim de Tikkun, the lights of chaos within the vessels of rectification. That if, as we said, the problem of chaos was that there was too much light and the vessels could not contain them, and the problem of Tikkun and rectification is that while the vessels are strong, the light is not very strong, there is an experience And it is my humble opinion that this is expressed within each and every recovering individual and within each and every point of recovery, within each and every person who experiences the potential towards addiction, that there is a way to draw down this massive intensity of the oros tohu of the chaotic lights, into our world, into rectified vessels. And the way that is experienced is in the realization the almost paradoxical realization that while what we want is rich and profoundly beyond what this world can offer, we must learn to be satisfied with desire itself. That the addict or the alcoholic in their addiction typically look at craving, the intense desire that occupies the paradoxical and impossible space between physicality and spirituality that anybody who describes a craving will be able to recognize that it's not quite physical and it's not quite spiritual. It's a liminal space that occupies that middle that constitutes both. That craving is not meant to be satisfied. That on a certain level, the craving that we experience as human beings, co-human beings for something larger than what we experience is part and parcel of the human condition. That instead of looking at craving and desire for something bigger than ourselves as a frustrating and resentful, angry experience because we can't get what we want, 
The Torah and Hasidus and Kabbalah and recovery speak of taking the condition of craving and seeing it as the essence of experience, that the craving that we experience is in and of itself what we're seeking. To satisfy the individual in their hunger itself. Not to satisfy the hunger with something that quenches the hunger, but the hunger itself for something larger than what this world can offer. The yearning for something beyond this world. The desire to reach an essence which we don't have access to. That is in and of itself the true experience of what it means to be a human being. And we're going to see this over and over, and it's going to be hammered in throughout the series of classes. But I want to end with one source from the Teferis HaChanochi. This is the Perish HaZohar from Avgershon Henoch of Radzin, the Sod Yesharim, the grandson of the Meshiloach, the son of the Beis Yaakov. And in Parshas Matos, he expresses as follows. He says, That in truth, within each and every spirit, there is the capacity of receptivity, of desiring something, of craving something. <clears throat> And the concept is that the source of the place within the soul that desires and craves is in truth rooted in a place that is very, very high. It's rooted in a place of tohu. It's rooted in a place of the chaotic expression of fullness that cannot abide or exist within this world. That if the individual is able to express themselves in this world in such an abject form of addiction or brokenness that appears to be so low and broken and separate from what the human being is meant to occupy themselves with, now, this is a general klal, a general rule that something that can express itself lower or lower than low is in truth rooted in a place that is much higher. Maharal expresses this explicitly in the Hakdama to Or Chadash on, on, on Megillah, on Megillah's Esther, on the Chag of Purim, that in order to manifest in the brokenness of experience, something must be rooted in the loftiest realms of experience. That those things, those people, those individuals that appear to be devoid of order in this world are in truth rooted in a much loftier place. Except that now, at this moment, it's removed. And he continues and he says that this is expressed in the Pasuk in Koheles, Vigam HaNefesh Lotimale, and the spirit shall not be satisfied. That no matter what the soul experiences in this world, it will not be satisfied because it knows deeply within itself that there is something more profound that is standing at the ready for it. Like the Medrash Rabba in Vayikra, Pelotalik says, an analogy to a humble village individual who marries a princess. And even though this individual from the village offers the princess all of the great gifts of this world, all of the ma'adim, all of the pleasures of this world, the princess will never be satisfied. Why? Because the princess comes from a place where it has truly tasted light. That our souls, the addicted aspect of our souls, is like the princess married or in relationship to the irony, to the village person. We're trying to satisfy a spiritual desire that has tasted the supernal light of clarity. 
and we try and satisfy it with this worldliness and we find that it continues to be hungry, it continues to crave. And the unique soul, the addicted soul that feels this craving more strongly will say, I need to try and satisfy this. And they find themselves stuck in the most destructive behaviors. But the truth of recovery is recognizing that this craving for something bigger, this craving which is rooted in the realization that the princess can never be satisfied by the village individual, is when a person truly recognizes that what we're truly seeking is not the substance itself, but rather the experience of wholeness that our souls contain within themselves in their ideal form. Next week, Be'ezra Sashem, what we're going to start discussing are the certain personality markers that these spirits of chaos, that these souls of addiction experience in their own day-to-day lives. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.